Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. My name is Oliver White, and today I'm joined by Marcus Isola. Marcus is a Java champion, former Java EE expert group member, founder of the Java Land Conference, O'Reilly author, and many other amazing things. These days, Marcus hangs his cape at Red Hat, where he is the developer adoption lead for EMEA. And prior to that, we both worked together at Lightbend, where we often teamed up to market new tools and technologies for distributed system developers. So it's great to catch up. And Marcus, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Oliver. It's been a while since we talked. So It is, it is. I think we met at Java 1 2011 for the first time. Uh, I wish I could remember, but I guess I'm getting too old for that. Um, yeah, it's it's been a while since we met. And, it was 50 uh, years ago, so... It's... Yeah, at least. I might might be 250. I can't really yeah. remember, but uh, still count you among the like oldest friends I have in the industry. And I do still remember that we did uh, the first activities together under the brand J-Rebel, if I'm not completely mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. And I still have one of these fancy J-Rebel author t-shirts. So at some point in both our past, I did write for uh, you already. And uh, I yeah. think we, we talked about technology since day one, right? Yeah, that's right. That was, uh, let's see, that was the Rebel Labs team at Zero Turnaround. Exactly. Has been acquired uh, at least twice since then through various company mergers. So it's, it's great to reminisce. Aside from how I introduced you, you know, do you want to say a little bit more about yourself? How do you describe your background and what does a developer adoption lead mean and so on? So in most of the days in my past, um, I've been traveling around and that's how we initially met, right? Speaking at conferences. So you mentioned Java 1, there's been plenty of other occasions. And I think the tag that people mostly attach to me is developer advocate, which is kind of more common these days for people who obviously enjoy flying around and uh, talking about technologies close to their heart. But there's more to, to my past. As a matter of fact, it's still true for the longest time in my professional career, I used to be a software developer and I started at the very basics, like all of us, um, AKA HTML and maybe even the first like lines of JavaScript. I touched Perl, I touched various other programming languages and went straight into uh, enterprise Java hell. So I built some of the, the biggest systems for commercial customers that we all might be customers of at some point. And uh, at some point in that, what do you even call it, adventure life, I decided that sharing knowledge is, is what I really wanted to do. So that's where I got this developers advocates tag. And I have to admit, like all of us, I'm also getting older. And uh, at some point I made a decision that I don't want to be on stage um, telling young and energized people about the mistakes and failures I made and what they should do better because I strongly believe they need to find out themselves. And also <laughs> I need to not be on stage anymore because there's so much potential out there, amazing young speakers, amazing new advocates, engineers, 
And I really wanted to like free that space a little bit more. And also I have to admit, focus on my health because traveling a lot actually takes a big toll on, on one's health and it did on mine. So I turned back to a company that I valued for many years that I've been at before as part of the former middleware uh, business unit. But now I'm in, in the go-to-market team and I'm basically responsible for developer communication on an EMEA, aka European level. So whenever our account teams talk to our customers and they come across one of these rare breeds like developers, they usually talk to decision makers and, and architects and God knows what, but sometimes they come across uh, developers and these guys are like, ah, no, don't want to like know not enough about our technology. And that's basically where they pick up the phone, uh, give me a call and we'll do all kinds of magic. And that still starts with stickers that does start uh, over with like presentations. And that might actually be me talking to customer developers about our technology. So it's it's kind of the same still, but without the travel and more focused. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the travel situation changed a lot over the last couple of years. I think I remember seeing you tweeting about going to maybe Frankfurt Airport or Munich and seeing a picture of, a, of an enormous line of people. Uh, and this was actually during the real pandemic days. So I, I know that you were traveling to some extent, even at that point. Yeah, um, funny story. I think I made it out of Austria a day before they closed borders at the very beginning of the pandemic. So it's I'm not saying I'm not traveling anymore, but I'm traveling for sure differently and more focused. And I think what's what's even more important, um, I can make sure to spread my knowledge more focused on people who are really interested in certain things. I don't have to look for catchy titles anymore, at least not that much. And I don't really have to focus on, on the latest and greatest, which still is one of the biggest criticisms for most conferences. I do absolutely understand um, that you really want to showcase like latest and, and greatest, but mm. honestly, enterprise developers, they care about different things. They care about velocity. They care about stability. They care about running applications for longer than anybody else does even distantly believe software could run, right? So speaking of some of these uh, applications I wrote back in the days, that are still running, like as of today, 15 years later, they've been modernized, but we'll get to that later, I guess. But at the end, yeah, I'm still doing developer advocacy to a certain extent, more focused, um, clear focus on, on Europe, Europe as like geographical region. And I'm still talking about stuff that I love um, making developers happy. That was more than 50 <laughs> words. Um, I apologize. Bob. Oh, yeah, we did have a 50 word uh, limit there. Thanks for sharing all of that. I mean, as, as you just said, you've been writing code for close to 20 years now. You know, how much of that? So some of that code is still running, which is great. And you mentioned it's been modernized. When did you start thinking about modernization, even in the early days? W what does it mean to you having worked with applications for so long? that are still around and we're not in and they don't have any of the new the new flashy frameworks or programming languages or paradigms or they're not on kubernetes how much of your job would you say has been thinking about modernization 
And uh, do you have any specific stories that we might like to hear about? So when I started as like the young, innocent developer, I obviously started with state of the art framework. So we did not go with plain enterprise Java when it was released 1.2, 1.4, whatever it's been. We started looking at uh, what turned out to be Spring as a framework, um, a collection of patterns. We started using struts as the, the basic model view controller framework. And uh, I have to admit, I did not care about any modernization at all. Like when you start writing code, all you basically aim for is implementing the business requirements, getting shit done, literally. And uh, I'm not blaming my past self about that. Um, modernization popped up on my radar the first time I had to fix something after a decent amount of time went past. So literally, I, I was part of a team, we implemented something, a year went by and somebody like picked up the phone, called me and asked me for, can we do something? And I'm like, probably not because not possible. But if we would change framework X, if we would like take a different approach too, if we would have known earlier, we could have taken precautions, right? We did not. So what turned out to be a semi-major refactoring of the original code, which by <laughs> by accident turns out to be my, my favorite story to tell, but uh, remind <laughs> me of that. We really had to like take an, a chunk of code that we deemed to be forgotten. We did not want to touch again because it was in production mm. and we had to touch it again and change it and make it up to date. So, and that was kind of my first um, modernization thoughts. And from there on, I actually started thinking about how deeply I integrate certain features into certain modern technologies, how much is going to be abstracted away, how, modular, I frame design something when I develop software. So I think modernization as a concept has never been an explicit non-functional requirement. Like it mm. could be as easy as needs to be able to be kept modern for at least 10 more, more years. Right. But no, it's never been. So that popped into my mind after I racked up a decent amount of experience developing software. So definitely more like an afterthought unfortunately but yeah we all learn the hard way so coming back to that story right so that phone call that was not a random guy calling me that was basically my ceo uh, back in the days and uh, he was triggered by a customer that needed it this specific functionality for regulatory reasons and we had no project team because we're all been assigned somewhere and part of the organization i was part of was called XT, uh, which basically said something like applied technology research. So we've been the, the firefighters. Um, so they picked up the phone, called us and uh, me and my, my best buddy back in the days, we had nothing else to do, like no kids, no, no nothing, right? We could literally just lock ourselves Young, inspired up. inspired developers, right? Yeah, seriously. So we yeah. basically <laughs> went to the supermarket, bought like a box of beer, locked ourselves up in the company over weekend, um, called the security guys to not check in our office because we'd be there like busy. We slept under the table 
tables and we spent like literally um, more than 24 hours refactoring a large project to fulfill these like new requirements. I think that was my best modernization story I had. Um, <laughs> but so uh, the challenge you were facing at the time was that there was a specific set of functionality that was required by an important customer that wasn't able to be developed because of the, let's say, the technical debt or yeah. the existing environment. And exactly. you were able to kind of reverse the limitations and add a new set of functionality specifically. And yeah, exactly. So basically... Um, the old weekend and... Uh, hard yeah, that, floor to sleep on using old bullen compilers to create new idl files generate new java stops around like that stuff was really old and we really did not want to touch it ever again but we had some regulatory requirements that need to be put in place and i'm not blaming anybody but somebody high up the chain definitely said something like yeah sure we can do this over the weekend um never envisioning how it actually would look like but uh, yeah good news is we managed it was indeed another milestone in my understanding of what modernization actually means mm. or even the ability to modernize because i also do believe that there's strong limitations when we're talking about modernizing certain concepts or even technologies. But yeah, it's it's been part of my journey ultimately. So maybe you could explain how, how you think of modernization because you just gave a really cool story example of two people spending a weekend hacking something very, very specific and it was within, it was from how I understand it, this wasn't an old environment at the time. So everything that was that was in the system was, let's say modern from your perspective at the time. And there were some things to, to be fixed, but imagine that you had to do that same job with that same application 15 years later. Would your understanding of what it meant to modernize a specific function or the entire application or its infrastructure, its you know how it was deployed and delivered to clients, would that be different now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was still comparably up to date. Right. So it, it was only a year old, right? Yeah, it, it had wrecked up some depth because like, you know, our our development and like that is a problem of our industry. So I always like to describe it as a curve. Within a shorter amount of time, we get more technologies and more choices. So what took like five years to develop, looking back like into the past, will only take five months from now on because mm. we have more choices. I, I usually start touching my belly and telling people the story about how that grew over time. And that's how <laughs> I envision our toolbox, right? So we actually got more choices. So. I think that we would not be able to modernize the same application as of today for various reasons. There would be technology incompatibilities that we just can't solve anymore. There's been native code, um, how native code gets introduced into the JVM changed completely over time. Certain things are not deemed to be stable anymore. Like there's been architectural approaches that we would not take ever again, or even like support in production anymore. And if I say- What's an example of that? 
Yeah, let's let's say some native code approaches that we like I back in the days personally went through mm. would not be chosen as of today. We'd rather go with like a plain Java implementation. And whenever I say we in this context, just let me state that crisp and clear. <laughs> that is me and my pals back in the days because right. I'm not I'm speaking for myself here and not for Red Hat, obviously. So don't make that mistake and take we for Red Hat. That's definitely me and my pals back in the days. Duly noted. Before you, you ever worked at Red Hat. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I built in. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I do think that, as I as I said initially, there that there are some limitations. Mm. I think migration is a comparably smooth story if you're not switching platforms or technologies. So whenever you are thinking about the famous Big Bang. Um, so what's the best example? Host systems to like cloud, right? So that... migrate everything over and exactly. So take your I'm saying AS400 because I vividly remember having seen one of these. So take this AS400 and put it in the cloud. I'm pretty sure there's some IBM guy coming out of the woods telling me, yeah, that's totally possible today. <laughs> so when I was thinking about that, it wasn't. Um, so we still had like constructs running on-prem somewhere on a completely different technology. The mainframe isn't actually that bad in terms of migration. The more you look at it, the better it gets. But uh, <laughs> for the average Java developer who's never had to touch one of these monsters, and I say that as long lovingly as I can, obviously. Um, <laughs> definitely one example that I'd mention. Is there something else? Yeah, proprietary stuff. So think about, uh, let's use a product as example that does not no longer exist. So there has been a BEA WebLogic kind of brand around process automation. I think it was called AquaLogic back in the days. There's been an ESB, there's been some like process modeling stuff and everybody was so excited about it. Yeah, guess what? Um, so kind of SOA flavor. Yeah, and uh, you, yeah. you basically can like paint your processes and uh, deploy them somewhere and, and be happy with it. And uh, yeah, guess what? If you would need to modernize that today, I guess that's pretty much impossible. Technology is no longer existence. There's no product support. You definitely have to like make a hot cut and re-implement something. Is that still modernization? If you take something that's existing and putting it on a completely new basis, that's probably rewriting. And it can probably be part of a modernization story. But yeah, it's uh, we're getting metaphysical here. I've, yeah, so I, I've not defined modernization in that sense. Yeah, there is. I feel like it makes sense to mention there is a little bit of a line in the sand here when it comes to modernization versus migration. And there's a lot of tools out there that can help you just lift and shift something to the cloud. And that provides some benefits. But for example, before the cloud even existed in your story from earlier, you had to actually refactor code. And that is, exactly. that is actual modernization. You're not just throwing a monolith into the cloud, which may work in certain cases, but usually doesn't deliver on what people are expecting. It's yeah, think about white and black box, right? Yeah. So white box, you take a sneak inside, rip something out, stick something new in, mm. and the black box is just like taking that box and shifting it somewhere else. Right. Exactly. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> 
There's a couple stats that we uh, that we got from a survey that we held with uh, 250 IT directors, and I want to see if any of them shock you. So one thing that we learned is that 79% of modernization projects ultimately fail, and that is at a cost of 1.5 million dollars on average and 16 months of workdays. Are you shocked? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and these are averages. So yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, I can't say that I'm seeing a lot of failed issues because I'm very focused right now from a technology perspective. But looking back into my former lives, this has always been one of the biggest challenges. And for various reasons and just think about let's go back to that mainframe because i love bashing on mainframes maybe i i can make up some ground here there <laughs> are some really really famous boxes sitting in companies that you'd never expect to still host these monsters relying on them as the backbone of literally everything they do since many many years so guess what one aspect of it there's still a high demand of people who are able to implement them tweak them fix boxes box do do whatever right so that's one aspect and the other aspect is um the people who initially wrote these applications are literally no longer in service so retired happily retired they've retired they've moved on uh, retired most likely and uh, they absolutely earned that uh, fun fact back in the days our profession wasn't wasn't as professional as it is today so there's a whole bunch of documentation that's missing some systems i've seen and heard of in the past basically were not described at all like literally they've been black boxes so whenever you think about a functionality that you use every day that works for you, but you don't know how it works, that is as scary as it can get when we're talking about software that needs to be modernized. Yeah, that, that's a problem that we, that we often encounter. And, and that, that is just one aspect. So throw that into the bucket of, of 75%. No, um, yeah. And, uh, 70, yeah, four out of five, let's say. <laughs> yeah. So, and, yeah. and also think about estimates, right? So we're doing an insanely bad job in estimating any changes to software, even like implementing that seems to be a big challenge in our industry in general. Um, just look at why do you think estimates are, are going so badly? Rather, who should be in charge of making the estimate? Does it come down to, you know, does the decision or rather the analysis end up getting shoved down the ladder to the point where you've got a, a junior developer who's been tasked with figuring out how long it'll take to refactor 10,000 classes of a Java app? You know, why, why does the analysis fall flat? I think biggest challenge is exactly the uh, the factor. So even if we can estimate something very clearly on like an individual case basis and say like that one function to rewrite, redeploy, that's going to take a full day. Somebody needs to look into it, fire up the IDE, set everything up, package it again. So that's going to be one day. As soon as you start adding like function number two or three or four, that'll easily up 
to like a couple of days so you basically run out of budget uh, before you even capture half of the the required refactorings and obviously that's not possible so somebody else comes in and says yeah you you need to be faster right so after the second or third function you'll probably only need half a day right don't you so <laughs> ultimate ultimately I think estimation always is what the name initially said. It is an estimation. I think we do know a lot of strategies and approaches today that make software development more reliable in terms of output and outcome. Estimating modernization projects still is really challenging. And uh, one particular thing that I like very much is if we really look at like a functional scope, think about a Java project that is bound to a certain vendor and uses certain packages from, let's say, back in the days, BA WebLogic. So we can clearly identify Java classes in something that is written that rely on these proprietary classes, right? So. Having something that scans your source code base, outputs just a number of occurrences, and maybe even assesses the complexity of classes, let's say size or whatever, and like give you an idea of the monster you're, you're about to embark on, right? So that could be a reasonable approach to this. Um, but there's not many- You are perhaps unwittingly describing exactly what V function does um, and then there's open source too, right? I mean, I, I work for Red Hat, so we yeah. talk about open source too. And uh, there's a project that's more than 10 years old. That's one of the first I've ever put my hands on because I really loved it. It's called yeah. Windup. So Windup wind does- Windup, like, like to wind up a, a trigger or, okay, Windup. Exactly. And uh, it's now part of a bigger initiative in the open source world called Conveyor. And mm -hmm. Conveyor basically has oh, all- yeah. Uh, you probably have heard about it. We, um, uh, we recently published a blog post with the conveyor team, our uh, co-founder and chief uh, architect, describing uh, how to actually analyze technical debt in a living system. Yeah, it's, and there's pretty exciting stuff going on in Conveyor, and I'm, I'm not going to dig into details, but Windup I love in particular because A, it's so old, B, I have, I've played around with it before it even became a thing. It's old like and, us, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's open source, right? So, and uh, that, that is, a, is a great example where approaches, methodologies can give you an idea, mm. point you into the right direction. The, probably plenty of other things that you need to like look at but um the average migration project does not take care for that like it's run as a feature request right so modernization is something that sneaks in as as a side requirement so there are other good examples. Think about companies that buy into today's cloud infrastructures and think about organizational part A and B and both need a database. One goes Postgres, the other one goes MySQL, mm. and they start putting data into various buckets, right? So at some point, uh, business figures out, uh, we basically need like the distinct select on both data boxes. So we basically need to like reintegrate these and the two separate applications here that really should be one at some point. And we're talking about maybe migrating that into a new application, right? So that's also a big challenge. Is that something that you can like solidly estimate if you're dealing with two teams 
with two completely separate applications that need to like help fulfilling a completely new business case. So all these could be indicators for failing projects, like being set up in the wrong way, not using the right tools, not using the right methodologies. As I said, even for me, modernization, migration, all this showed up on my plate as a software developer, as an architect, very late in my career when I've had enough experience and enough chances to actually witness this in, in the wild, right? So throwing a challenge like this at somebody and expecting this to be a success is, is probably a little much. So I guess the answer to lower this number would be to make the right choices uh, in selecting your partners. Would you agree with the idea that unless you're refactoring or dealing with the business logic of an application or the, let's say, considering the architectural advancement or let's say evolution of an application, if you're not looking at any of those things, you're essentially looking at migration. And once you start touching the business logic, then we're talking about modernization. I think it comes back to that black and white box, right? As soon as you change something in the box, doesn't have to be business logic, can easily be a sign on database technology. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah, maybe like as, as soon as you start touching something inside, mm. I consider that modernization. If you're touching something outside from an infrastructure perspective, that is more like migration, right? Lift and shift or whatever you call it approach in that case most likely requirements haven't changed at all like there's no different scaling requirements it's just about putting it on another box literally right right what sort of um architecture patterns like for example the strangler fig pattern which martin fowler very cleverly described gosh probably 10 years ago at least as being an approach to kind of getting started. You know, we, we mentioned the Big Bang modernization initiative, which I believe is a an ultimate fallacy that some enterprises fall into, and that, that might be part of the four out of five enterprises that ultimately fail to modernize their application. In terms of getting started, what sort of patterns uh, that people can learn about would you recommend? So for example, the Strangler Fig pattern, as I mentioned, the saga pattern for distributed uh, messaging and so on. What have you seen work well for people? All of them, um, yeah. depending on the context, right? So I think Chris Richardson initially said that the easiest to, to change into a distributed application and trying to do a little bit of like a bigger circle here, but we'll see how, how that works out. So the easiest to turn into, into a distributed application, AKA microservices or like something that is modern as to today's standards is a well-architected monolith, right? So if you just imagine you already have something that is built out of modules, um, maybe even running on OSGI or something comparable like a module system, I think it will be comparably easy to just cut it in pieces, add adapters in between, make a very solid choice for inter-process communication or service communication. Think about the service uh, orchestration ultimately, and uh, it could be an easy win. 
So if we're thinking about the, the famous shopping cart example that everybody's talking about, and the one non-functional requirement that changes on Black Friday is that uh, we get more signups to like the shopping cart, right? So the one part of our big monolith that we really need to scale are the sign-in kind of functionality right. and the so catalog functionality. Yeah, shopping cart. Changing your wish list is not a service that you need to scale. Uh, highly yeah, exa exactly. Market. So, and I think if you have a requirement like that, or online banking is another good example. So, when does online banking fail? It's like every first of the month because everybody checks if like salary comes in, right? So, that it, do you need to scale the whole application for that? Probably not. So, how's that service even architected? Like, how is, is it built into your application? Is that still a monolith? Is that already some kind of combination of microliths? meaning individual three-tiered application coupled together being more easily scalable. So I, I guess the, the answer stands. So all of them are working within the right context. And this is where experience comes in. This is where you can't just pull out your easy guide to modernization, follow decision points one A, B, C, D. You actually need to look into, into that. And I think one of the most challenging parts is understanding existing applications, not only from the technology, meaning layers and tiers, but more importantly, from, from the module perspective mm. and uh, also a functional view, right? Understanding which parts have a change in functional or non-functional requirements that actually influence the outcome of this modernization process. So scoping is a big issue. Having the, the still having access to the knowledge of the team that initially implemented it. So it's which is, it's which a bunch. Is definitely not guaranteed these days, right? For various reasons, it's not right, and uh, that is okay-ish. But no documentation in the world is probably able to fix that one thing that somebody clearly marked with a very teensy to do and commented don't touch because i've tried like increment that counter or was that joke right increment that counter if you change that method and it's already at 41 um so these these things yeah. nobody really can like anticipate and so yes do all of these things work that you mentioned patterns best practices there's a bunch but in this particular case there's a variety of input variables, meaning different versions of architected software. And there's also a variety of functional and non-functional requirements for the end result. So that is where an architect comes in. That is where a super senior experienced developer comes in who's done that before, because I hate to say it, but sometimes I compare that, this to, to heart surgery, right? It might be not as complicated in terms of somebody might die, but you will have to understand what you're doing. And you need to start with a small module in, in a bigger project before you're able to plan out a complex modernization project. All right. Thanks for going into that in some detail. We're getting close to the end, but there's a few more questions that I have for you. And uh, I love how opinionated you are, you know, unapologetically, you're inoffensive and uh, you never shy away from saying what you feel. Let's imagine uh, a group of stakeholders in a modernization process. So we've got the executive team, we've got the architects, and we've got the development team. What would you say 
to each of these groups, rather, what would you tell them that they should do? And what would you suggest is a pitfall that might occur for each of these groups too? So let's start with developers. What sort of uh, advice would you give to a development team engaging in a modernization process? And what's one of the pitfalls that you, uh, you might warn them of? Good question. I was mentally prepared to start at the top, but uh, well, let's, 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 let's flip no, it. No, no worries. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stick with the developers. So I think number one advice I always give is make sure you understand the technology we're aiming at. So usually developers are the guys with the in-depth knowledge about something from a technology perspective. Could be a framework, could be a service, could be like something. And uh, I've also seen some like business related frameworks, uh, calculation kernels uh, in, in the financial industries or like make sure you're familiar with the thing you're about to touch. So that it is it like for a developer, a modernization project should not be that different. The only thing that is different, they might need to learn something new. Think about switching Java E to Spring, and I'm trying to like stick to simple examples here. But yeah, you need to have knowledge of both where you're coming from and where you're going. And that is my one advice. And the pitfall, if you don't, let's say that's directly connected to the pitfall. Uh, exactly. What happens if you don't? That's kind of the management approach, right? So we want to use framework X and we're going to hire a team of specialists in framework X and they know nothing about the existing application or the technologies being used pitfall. So it's, it's a lot of wasted time. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. And that also implies that you need to like breed these kind of developers because there's, it's not always as natural in terms of a technology progression like it is java e spring quarkus whatever we're talking these days it might actually be more complicated and more specific as i mentioned calculation kernels or something else right so usually that will definitely involve a learning phase so you can't expect these projects to start tomorrow because there'll always be some kind of like learning exploration brushing up knowledge phase the, we, not to be uh, too self-congratulatory here, but uh, we actually use something called a learning phase in V function for specifically this. Let's, uh, let's move from the developer group to the architects. What would you recommend architects uh, think about? What I have seen very rarely in my times um, working with a lot of architects is the explicit definition of non-functional requirements. So we're all pretty good in expressing the functionality of a certain button on a UI, which is commonly known as a functional requirement, but we struggle to define scaling requirements, the number of concurrent users, these kind of examples. So what I'd like architects to explicitly define are the goals that drive modernization. So instead of just focusing on updating functionality, I really want them to justify technology decisions. Like, why aren't we sticking with what we already have? Because we need to be somewhere else, because we need to have extended support, which is not available. Like all these migration related non-functional requirements rarely get captured 
even more rarely get like analyzed down to the actual implications. And all this has to be handled by the architect. So if they're non-functional, we can maybe think of them as business requirements or at least related to the line of business. So like it can be, a, yes, Black Friday, we need to be able to scale our login yeah. service and our shopping cart checkout service. Anything exactly. else related to this e-commerce site is not a priority to be able to scale. We might want to consider having a microservice for these functions, et cetera. So you're saying that it's the architect that should be keeping these things in mind because now we're shifting to the executives and most likely the executives are the ones thinking of the business requirements and not the functional requirements. And the architect is kind of in the middle. So what do executives get wrong and right when it comes to modernizing? That is an interesting question. I do think one of the biggest mistakes of executives is to not treat modernization as an actual project. Mm. It's kind of an implicit requirement in most cases, and it kind of pops into executives' faces when it did not work out that way. So that's what I've seen a lot, people being totally surprised that a certain feature is not available because they are stuck on a five-year-old technology version of, of product XYZ, right? So they kind of implicitly expected that the project kept updating their technology depth in that case, right? We're, we're not even talking about business functionality. So I think if you want to be safe and if you want to have a good idea, also make sure to explicitly plan migration phases for these projects, which is something that I rarely have seen. Hmm. All right. Well, that was excellent. Marcus, it's always such a great pleasure to catch up with you. And I really hope we can meet in person soon, even though you're not traveling terribly much these days. This brings us to the end of our podcast, but for anyone who would like a little bit of uh, entertainment at the end, let's go to the lightning round. With Marcus, pleasure. what is the last song you listen to? Don't you worry, Black Eyed Peas. Don't you worry. I think I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> what do you do to stay healthy? Um, addicted to Apple Fitness Plus, spending a shitload of time, and I think we're talking like... 15,000 active calories burned per month, doing functional strength, core trainings, and uh, maybe a little bit of walking and swimming. Well, then maybe I shouldn't ask the next question, but uh, what is one of your favorite comfort foods and are you, are you allowed to have it anymore? <laughs> uh, it's, it's burritos. I'm dying for burritos in any form. A good news is the burrito game in Germany is might be a little weak, but uh... yeah, it is, and this is the good <laughs> part of it because I don't get any here, um, so I can <laughs> I can make like a small version myself, but it's not even getting close to the ones I like used to get in the states, for example. So yeah, I'm not getting them, but yes, that's my favorite comfort food. Well, I hope they don't uh, open a Chipotle uh, around the corner from you. It's not happening. What is one of your favorite movies? I thought a lot about that question, and maybe you don't even know it. Um, there's a movie with Chris Christopherson, and it's like years old, maybe 1970-something, and it's called Convoy. I know the title, but I've never seen it. 
Love it. Um, watch it countless times, and it's very closely followed by Top Gun, probably. <laughs> the the new one or the original? The new one I haven't seen yet, but uh, yes, the original. Let's uh, go to this one. What are three books you feel like folks should read? That is a good question, and I got asked that question before, so I'm well prepped. So obviously the first one is uh, Modernizing Enterprise Java, which is my COVID book published by O'Reilly together with my amazing co-author, Natalie. We teamed up, um, so if you read chapters one, three, five, you get the management view, um, which basically gives you an overview about planning, motivations for migration, modernization in general, where talk a little bit about conveyor. If you read chapters two, four, and at the rest, damn it, um, that's all gonna be technology. Natal is basically taking you through a modernization story for a, a traditional enterprise Java application into Kubernetes land. And we're talking service mesh, we're talking non-functional requirements, we're talking pretty much everything it takes. It's not that much of a hard read in terms of like pages, it's not 5,000 or whatever. And if you're quick, you can still download it from developers.redhead.com. There's a free ebook section. It's only going to be a PDF and it won't have my signature on it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's there. Well, uh, I, I'll make sure to include that and the rest in the show notes. So folks, uh, that would be amazing. So a second book uh, by an author, Martin Rue, and it's called The Wave. And it's really old. And a lot of students in Germany have to read it in German, unfortunately. It's a, it's a pseudonym. So Todd Stresser was the original author of this. And it basically is a history lesson about what happened in World War II, why not a lot of Germans said no to what was going on, mm. and an experiment in group dynamics. Mm -hmm. Also not a very long read, uh, but something I truly believe everybody should at least have read once. There's also an audiobook for the impatient. And the third one is The Art of Misunderstanding. So there's a German, again, uh, called Schulz von Thun, and he developed uh, what he called a four sides model. So the four sides model of communication uh, basically tells a story around messages we send, messages we receive, contents of that message, active, passive, and gives you a better idea of what you do when you're communicating and what you receive. Um, mm. Think about that old couple sitting in a car in front of a traffic light that's red and she's telling him it's green drive. Mm. So there's all kinds of different messages in, in just this little piece of communication. And he basically made this uh, a communication model and there's a series of books um, also published in English if I'm not completely mistaken. So that's my that's my pick. Excellent. Uh, I look forward to looking into some of these myself. Final question. If we could bring back the T-Rex through cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? Hell no. <laughs> and why? Yeah, no. Like, what's dead's dead. I don't look back. We're not going that way. All right. Well, Marcus, such a good time. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person soon, if possible. Thank you for having me. As always, a pleasure. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.